Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Certain words said at the wrong time or place may get a person into a heap of trouble. The laws surrounding freedom of speech do not permit us, for example, to shout fire in a theater or to advocate the immediate and violent overthrow of the government. There are also limits on the time and place where a person can recite swear words or other foul language or language with sexual innuendos or suggestions. Richard Dooling, an attorney and writer living in Nebraska, joined us in June of 1997 to talk about his book entitled Blue Streak, Swearing, Free Speech, and Sexual Harassment. Rick, welcome to Radio Curious. Uh, thanks for having me, Barry. In the last part of the 1990s, there seems to be a whole new set of unmentionable words. Can you tell us about them and why they've evolved this way? Well, I'm not sure I can explain why they've evolved. It's a really sort of irrational uh, language. Um, swearing is sort of a close cousin to jokes, uh, magic, ritual, laughter. Uh, it's really driven almost half, at least half by reflex. But it does seem that all societies seem to select certain sounds that stand for symbols, almost, of things that we don't want to talk about. Anybody who thinks about this subject for any length of time realizes right away that the sounds are arbitrary. I mean, we could just we could pick any sound and have it stand for the tabooed subject. Um, if you go to a, a, a Tahiti, which is where the word uh, taboo comes from, or Polynesia, um, there's a whole set of sounds over there that will get you in trouble that you know, we could freely say on the radio. Uh, but for instance, well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> taboo. <laughs> uh -huh. That's where that word came from. It's a. It's almost a mixture of. Uh, it's a. It's a paradox because on the one hand it means sacred and inviolable, and yet on the other hand it means dangerous. Uh, and so, as as Henry Miller observed, a lot of these words that we've banned. Uh, at the time he wrote, he was talking about the the sexual and the the dirty words. These are words that we all have tacitly agreed not to talk about. And uh, when you mention them, it's kind of like putting a spark to gasoline. It alarms everyone in the room. Well, what happens if you say the word taboo in uh, Tahiti? <clears throat> well, uh, probably a similar reaction to what you'd have if you said uh, certain gender epithets or uh, racial epithets uh, in our society. Uh, because for some reason, not for some reason, I mean, I could guess a lot of reasons why we have selected that subject as the most volatile subject, the one that we can't talk about for our society at this time. And it's probably just because of the dangerousness of, I mean, you look at the riots in Los Angeles and the, the OJ trial and uh, just differences in general. These are not just semantic differences. I mean, it's, it's 
can destabilize society as a whole. And so we there's a certain set of sounds that we have set aside uh, that stand for that volatility, and so we don't say them. Uh, right now they're mostly epithets. And we can't say them on this, or at least I wouldn't say them on this program. And in a way, they're almost more offensive than the old, you know, what you think of as the George Carlin Seven Dirty Words. You could get away with saying that in polite society now a lot faster than you could get away with using uh, a race, racial or gender epithet or a, uh, a epithet against someone's sexual orientation. That's far more dangerous for us. Well, Rick, how do you see that society goes about deciding what forms or what specific words, what speech is offensive or fighting words? Well, again, I think it's really an unconscious thing. It's, un it's almost tacit. We don't really overtly say this is the most dangerous thing. It evolves. Um, there's a uh, phenomenon called the euphemism treadmill that several linguists have identified, and that's where you keep changing the names of everything. You look at a term like uh, um, the N-word used to be very acceptable, as we know from reading Mark Twain and Joseph Conrad and so on. It was commonly used by everyone, black and white a lot alike. Um, at that time, the time when Mark Twain was written and so on, the most offensive thing that you could call a, a black person was black. Oh, he's just a black. Uh, that didn't lose its its uh, its force until the Black Power movement in the '60s, and then it became a symbol of pride. Um, so it's very interesting to go back and look at how these terms evolve and how they rise and fall out of favor. You look at uh, Afro-American, which was very much in vogue 20 years ago when I was in college. Okay. Somewhere along the line, we felt the need to change it yet again to African-American. It's very close, but it's almost uh, the linguists say that we need to recycle these things because they get coated with taboo, if you will, and then it's time to get a new, a new term, even if it's very close to the former one. Well, who does the recycling? Is it the people who are the subject of the term, or is it the people who use it in reference to others? I think it would be, uh, if, if you think about it, the especially the political correctness movement is by people who are concerned about these problems and want to do something about them. Uh, so it's probably a combination of the people who are referred, you know, who get referred to uh, using these terms, but also sociologists and psychologists who are concerned about the fact that our differences separate us. One of the words that uh, I suspect may be in the, in the future of being changed is the word squaw. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I had an op-ed piece on the New York Times on the word squaw uh, a while back because uh, it's kind of an interesting story. There was a uh, legislative action in the state of Minnesota, and this is going on in several states, um, there was a directive to all the counties to change the name of any place that uses the word squaw, so lakes, creeks, uh, forests, anything, um, that, and they set a deadline. You have to uh, change the, take the word squaw out of the name because it's offensive. And uh, So there were two counties, uh, 
most prominently, I think it was called Lake County up there in the north, where they said, well, we're not going to, we think this is silly, it's just uh, an exercise in political correctness, we're not going to change the name of uh, Squaw Creek or Squaw Lake or whatever it was. And uh, the legislature said, okay, fine, there, there were some punitive measures attached. I think it had to do with money. So they were more or less forced to change the name, and so they named it Politically Correct Bay and Politically Correct Creek. <laughs> <laughs> and the legislature was not amused. Uh, and so at that time, the New York Times called, and I wrote a short piece on, on Squaw and... Uh, I guess my take on it then is the same as it is now. I mean, it's more squaw is becomes a symbol. It's something that we want it to mean. We want to be concerned about the fact that the American Indians and, and Native Americans were treated, you know, grossly unfairly, and the, there's never been a retribution for that behavior. And so we want to select a, a symbol to stand for our concern and people seize upon the word squaw and then say they start doing research going back in history trying to find some derogatory meaning uh the the people in minnesota were arguing that it means the private parts of a, a woman in algonquin but uh most of the linguists could not find that uh that association it was uh definitely a minority take on the meaning of the word and yet again, it doesn't so much matter what it meant then. Uh, what concerns us is what we want it to mean now. And so we want it to be a symbol of our of uh, the way these people were treated when we took over the country. Do you find that the recognition of symbols like this um, is a salve, or does it really do something to ameliorate the problems that existed uh, in the past? Well, I think I, I, I'm encouraged, actually, to see us more concerned about epithets than about, say, sex. You know, I think at one point in Blue Streak, I even say, finally, hatred is more dangerous than sex. Because for hundreds of years, we went back and forth between blasphemy, uh, sex, uh, bodily functions, those were the most alarming things. And if you think about it, before birth control and before penicillin, sex probably was the most dangerous social uh, evil when it when it's uh, um, not done properly within the context of marriage. It's very destabilizing and, uh, and threatening to the social order. And so those were the most unspeakable terms. But now we have, you know, all sorts of birth control at our disposal, and also venereal disease is less uh, threatening, except for obviously the AIDS uh, epidemic. But, uh, but on the other hand, we have a whole new set of problems in that we still have not. We, we have a history of racism, and racism is very much alive if you look at the. Uh, sorts of sounds that we've selected as the most alarming, I would conclude that this is still a very threatening thing to us as a society. Rick, I want to ask you about certain words that uh, cannot be said on uh, radio or television, but first I want to remind our listeners that my guest this week is Rick Dooling, who is an attorney in Omaha, Nebraska, and the author of a new book called Blue Streak, Swearing, Free Speech, and Sexual Harassment. 
Rick, if we talk about the seven so-called George Carlin words that uh, the FCC prohibits, uh, their, their recital on radio or television, they can be said from their Latin or Greek origins, but they can't be said from their uh, English common vernacular. Why do you think the line is drawn like that? Well, again, the sounds are almost arbitrary. Uh, one constitutional scholar called that opinion, the, uh, the opinion that you're referencing is uh, FCC versus Pacifica, and that was arose out of the famous George Carlin monologue uh, about the seven words that you never would be able to say on radio and TV. <clears throat> One listener complained, and the FCC then uh, took, a, took this case all the way to the Supreme Court to really, the way that uh, the opinion reads, they're just regulating this sort of speech during certain hours of broadcast. And again, you know, who cares how you say sexual intercourse? I mean, it all does it all mean the same thing? Yes, it does. But we have selected certain ways of saying that that stand for us as abusive, abusive sexual intercourse, dangerous sexual intercourse in a society uh, in, in certain parts of Africa, for instance, incest is the most dangerous thing that you can talk about and so all the words connected with incest are banned and people don't say them so it's really a leftover of the the phenomenon we were talking about before where sex was the most dangerous thing because most of the george carlin seven dirty words have to do with either sex or or bodily functions but only certain forms of, of verbs, uh, of sexual related verbs can be mentioned. Right. Uh, why is it that some of those get people so scared and so upset when others don't? Again, it's just this unspoken agreement that we all have that this word, the F word for instance, stands for those kinds of sex that are most alarming to us. And someone who's gonna start throwing that word around is showing a disrespect for those boundaries that we have marked off. They're almost psychic boundaries about this is the kind of sex that is evil and dangerous and socially destabilizing. And when someone stands up and starts throwing those terms around that we have you know, designated to stand for that kind of behavior, they're showing a disrespect for us, for uh, that kind of uh, sexual behavior as if it doesn't matter and so on. It's, 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 it's very alarming. Again, a lot of people would say, oh, come on, you know, in the workplace we say that all the time, and that's true. But in the workplace you don't say the new set of words right now. Or, or else you're a very brave individual <laughs> well, if you do. Let's talk about those new sets of words that are uh, becoming uh, increasingly unmentionable. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the words that center around sexual harassment and sexual innuendos in the workplace and perhaps even on the street. Uh-huh. What's the uh, genesis of this? Well, you've had the uh, uh, American women now make up almost 40 to 50 percent of the workforce, which wasn't true 50 years ago. So you've had, we've had to assimilate a whole new gender, if you will, in the workplace. And part of the politics of that group entering the workplace has evolved around the use of certain kinds of language. Again, who cares what sounds we select, but 
it seems that we have selected certain kinds of sexual talk. And again, the sexual discrimination laws, which were passed in the 60s and went all the way up until 1986 before anybody ever thought that dirty words would constitute sexual discrimination. Originally, sexual harassment was quid pro quo sexual harassment, where if you sleep with me, I will see that you get a raise or I will see that you get a better grade. Only in 1993, I think, did the you know, around the time of the Clarence Thomas hearings, that people really think, hey, you know, you can sue somebody just for saying something in the workplace, which to First Amendment scholars is usually a very alarming phenomenon because you have the government going around telling employers what they can and can't allow their employees to say in the workplace. Well, that brings us to the topic of lawyers, uh, something that uh, <laughs> both you and I have a license to be. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's the lawyers who often uh, crystallize this and, and put it into the books just as they were proposing in Minnesota around the word squaw, as you were explaining. Mm -hmm. uh, it creates a lot of fear and anger towards lawyers. Uh, tell us what your thoughts are on this. Well, uh, let's use the example of Title Seven again. Here's a perfectly good statute that worked very well when it was interpreted primarily as forbidding differences in pay. Rick, let's explain what Title VII is. Oh, Title VII forbids discrimination on the basis of race, sex, uh, ancestry, religious uh, behavior, and so on. It's the, it's the poster that you always see hanging in the workplace, and it's the grounds that someone would use to, to sue for sexual harassment or for uh, racial discrimination. And for 20 years, it did its job very well because it was interpreted primarily as a statute that required you to pay men and women the same to hire someone without regard to their race or their sex, which as an employment discrimination lawyer is an easy thing to prove, really. If you have someone of equal qualifications that you turned away and they happen to be uh, a woman or a, uh, a, an African-American, and then you hire someone with the exact same qualifications the next day who is, who is uh, Caucasian, well, you have a lawsuit there. And you don't have to spend two weeks trying to figure out who said what to whom. Uh, he, said, he said, she said. It's, uh, it's very matter-of-fact. Similarly with the pay things. I mean, if someone's being paid differently, that's simple to prove. You put the person on the stand with their... Uh, paycheck stubs and, and prove up your lawsuit. But when you get into this gray area of what is harassment, you know, a joke can be harassment now. Certain stuff coming off the internet, if the person is reading it in the workplace, uh, paintings on the wall, Gauguin paintings have been the basis of EEOC charges. Uh, you know, uh, a party, a office party where everybody gets drunk and sings a song or something, again, basis of an EEOC charge. How far do you think this is going to go when you get artwork and music uh, into litigation? Well, I think it will go until people realize how unworkable it is, especially now with, as of 1993, we now have punitive damages for this kind of thing. So you're going to have, and jury trials. So what, Title VII, again, when it worked well, it was a judge-tried case. There was no jury. 
juries take forever to select, as you know, and then you have to obey all these formalities that just aren't there in a judge-tried case. But now Title VII is a full-blown jury trial, so you're going to have a full-blown jury trial that lasts four or five days over one termination of one employee or over a series of dirty jokes at the water cooler or paintings hanging on the wall or tool company calendars or all this silly stuff that we're perfectly capable of uh, managing ourselves by, in the, or at least that's what we used to do. We didn't have the, the federal government telling us uh, what the workplace should look like. People did it. You know, and that's a very common misconception, as you probably know as a lawyer. People think that uh, if I'm if I don't want the federal government in the workplace, and I don't want Title VII to be interpreted as a statute that forbids certain kinds of speech, they automatically think, oh well, he likes swearing. You know, he he wants people to be able to call people the N word in the workplace. Never, you know, if an employer wants to pass a workplace rule that says anyone who says shut up in the workplace will be instantly terminated, he or she has that perfect right. That's freedom of commerce, you know. You don't have any free speech rights vis-a-vis a private citizen or a private employer. You can be thrown out of a restaurant for, for you know, having your fork on the wrong side of the plate if that's what the the uh, owner wants to do. On a standard that's equally applied to all people. Sure, as that's... long as you're not just throwing out, you know, women or, or minorities or uh, Jewish people or something, which would be, again, fairly easy to prove. Sure. But when you have the government passing laws that say uh, that everybody has to keep their fork on the same side of the plate or no one can say shut up in the workplace, you run into constitutional problems immediately because we have the First Amendment, which has protected citizens not from each other, not from their employer, but from the federal government. So it's perfectly okay for us to have a party or for us to start a company and tell people how we want them to conduct themselves in the workplace. But we can't do that if we are, you know, uh, officials of the federal government. Yeah. Uh, well, Rick, we're kind of running out of time, and I did want to talk about lawyers and how you see the okay. role of lawyers and uh, the fear and anger that they create among non-lawyers. I think I wandered off the track. Um, take that Title VII statute again. And when we passed it, it expressed our highest ideals. We wanted people to be treated equally without regard to race, sex, creed, ancestry. And again, in the beginning, it did its job, and it, it expressed our concern for each other and our concern that we all be treated equally. But then somewhere along the line, you start having lawsuits. And the more lawsuits you have, you must have lawyers, and then you have this expanding interpretation of the conduct that is covered by that statute. And so it grows and grows and grows until people resent the interference of that statute because it now embraces behavior that we did not foresee when we passed it. When we passed it, it expressed our highest uh, wishes for each other, but it gradually gets debased by this thing called litigation which is inevitable every time you pass a law. The unforeseen behavior. Yes. And 
So that's why I think it behooves us to be very careful when we pass laws to make sure that they are necessary, that there's no other alternative, and that they're very narrowly defined instead of just being a, uh, uh, an open door that uh, people can come, that, that the federal officials can come in and start regulating the workplace. And lawyers get the bad reputation because we keep passing laws. And every time you pass a law, you have to have two lawyers on both sides of a lawsuit interpreting and reinterpreting that statute or that regulation that we passed that was supposed to do, you know, such wonderful things for us. But it cannot exist outside of a courtroom where it gets interpreted and applied to human behavior. Especially where people uh, don't like the law as the legislature wrote it and want to go against it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's the genesis of, of what takes us to the courtroom. Yes. But oftentimes you can end up in the courtroom just because you have a poorly drafted law or, or one that isn't uh, clear on its face. Uh, so you have to interpret it by applying it to a, a situation that... Uh, you know, that the, the people who passed the law hadn't even thought of. And then we have the regulatory laws that uh, I guess were the basis for the woman who received so much money when she spilled the cup of hot coffee on herself. <laughs> yes. That, but that's another story. Yes. Well, Rick Dooling, I appreciate you joining us at Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at this time. And that is, could you please tell us a little bit about an interesting book that you've read lately? Oh, let's see. I, I'm reading a lot of uh, uh, neuroscience at the moment. Um, and uh, I guess if I was going to take the, the last book that I've read that really caught my eye on that subject, it would be uh, Joseph Ledoux's The Emotional Brain. Um, there's a lot of brain books coming out now, like every two months, about how our brain works because of the advances in functional imaging. And there's even some of this in Blue Streak because certain parts of our brain are involved in swearing um, that aren't involved in the so-called higher speech that we're engaging in right now. Uh, so I guess I'd recommend that book, The Emotional Brain. And I guess there's some people who swear uncontrollably and... Uh, Tourette's and, syndrome. Yeah. yeah, and they find themselves in a heap of trouble. <laughs> well, I don't know. They might be protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. It could be. Oh, well, Rick Dooling, uh, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Okay, thanks, Barry. Richard Dooling is an attorney and writer who lives in Nebraska. He is the author of Blue Streak, Swearing, Free Speech, and Sexual Harassment. The book he recommends is The Emotional Brain by Joseph Ledoux. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 
5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.